this is Take Notes with Jen Rafferty, where we move music education in new directions. I'm your host, Jen Rafferty, a music educator, author, and huge social science nerd. And I am so excited to go on this journey with you as we highlight the intersection between music education and the social sciences. My guest today is Dr. Derek Fox, who is the Director of Choral Activities and Distinguished Associate Professor of Music at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. Dr. Fox has conducted all-state choirs, led international, national, and regional choral concerts, and has presented professional development workshops across the United States and internationally. He also serves on the National ACDA Diversity Subcommittee. As an author, he has written articles for many organizations and was a contributing author in the Hal Leonard McGraw-Hill choral textbook, Voices in Concert. Dr. Fox has recently partnered with the Country Music Association Foundation in the creation of the 2020 Unified Voices for Music Education Initiative, and I wanted to talk with him today about his journey in sharing the work of diversity, equity, access, inclusion, and belonging in action to music teachers. And before we dove into what the work actually looks like, I wanted to know what inspired him to start sharing the work that he was doing so publicly. It was so interesting. I went to Latvia a couple of years ago and they, it was around time of right before the presidential election. And they were, they wanted to talk about all politics, all the politics, but I was like, nope, we don't. We don't. Oh, no. Oh, I was in South Africa. That's what it was. They want to talk about all, all the politics, politics. And you know how we are. It's like, no. And then we started to the person said to me, it's so interesting that in America, you all don't want to talk about this because here we talk about it all. That we just put it out there and we talk about it, even if we don't agree with. And I was like, I've, I don't know where I learned it, but I learned. And this is that cycle cycle of socialization i learned that you don't talk about politics in public because it could create conflict before we went to uh, to one of our international trips to uh, this time we were going to latvia i told the group we were having a briefing with the international coordinator i said do not talk about politics while you're on this trip and the coordinator said the coordinator said well yeah they should they can i mean they want to know and they want to talk about it i said they don't, I don't want them to talk about it, not for what it will do for them, but what it's going to do in this group. And, you know, now that I go back on that moment, I know why I did it because um, my, my first year here, there was the, it was the, the, the it was the day after the election. Um, this was five years ago. So it was the first term of Trump. And before that, before that day, my students were talking, talking, talking. They were friends, you know, laughing. This is my first first year here. But the day of the election, it was silent. And everyone was looking at me the whole time. And as a, as a teacher, as a conductor teacher, you know, that's a problem because your singers or your musicians, or they're not ever always looking at you all the time, unless there's something wrong. And so I knew something was wrong in that room and in that space. And so I stopped rehearsing and we talked about it. Not to try to not to try to make everybody feel good, but it was an acknowledgement that there was conflict in the room and there was an acknowledgement that something is different. And we we're going to have to figure out from this moment forward how to move forward. And what I did over that through that time was building in a program that we were able to develop language 
about how to talk about difficult, difficult conversations. And that came through repertoire. And it wasn't necessarily repertoire by race. We did a piece um, because that's the first thing that people go through to when they think about diversity and inclusion is race, 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 race. But there we are. Intersectionality is so important because we are lots of people in lots of places and we function in many different ways. And with intersectional, with whatever component of intersectionality is cultural capital in the room where we are, that's where we have power. So that's constantly shifting in our lives. And um, so we, I had to move, figure out a path forward for us to figure out how to talk and discuss language. And so we did pieces about mental health. And then we talked about mental health and we talked about resources on our campus for people who may need that. So it was very clear to me that Dr. Fox's approach to this was about creating relationships and establishing common language. I realized that I had to, um, I, rem- I remember growing up as a teacher. Again, it's that whole thing about you teach in your classroom and people, sh- students shouldn't know where you fall on anything. Like you just are in there to teach the music. And that's it. They shouldn't know where you fall on anything. I've heard even, you know, probably not most things about your life. I was very about that. But I realized in that moment, I can have opinions and students can know those opinions, but they, I can, I also have to build a trust over time that they know that they, that my opinions are not going to be presented in class or used in class to try to um, penalize them that that space is open, like I said, for it to be safe and brave and all of the facets of safe and brave, not just the facets that resonate with me, but some if someone someone asked about the Jackson 5, should we still be singing Jackson 5? I don't think the, the you know, the me that just started teaching, I'm not, I don't think a student would have asked me that in the middle of class. I'm not sure I would have received it the way that I received it either, as I, as I do now. But they need to, that they know they can ask those things. You know, they know they can come to me and say, hey, you know, we're doing a lot of religious music this semester. Can we can I talk to you about that? Yes. Let's talk about it. Talk, let's talk through it. And then I move forward thinking about how I can be sure to be, you know, if my whether I think I'm balancing it out or giving that student perspective about longevity. And I'm, I'm not just shutting down and going, oh. I can't deal with this. I'm going to lash out at you because we talked about that. Teachers, we can lash out sometimes if we if we if we're fearful, and that fear comes when we don't have the right words, or we haven't had the experiences to help shape us. And so I wanted to talk more about this language and fear, because fear does come as an obstacle sometimes when we don't feel as if we have the language to fully express ourselves or to really even understand what it is that's going on. So I asked Derek to talk a little bit more about that as well. One of the things about doing the work of diversity, equity, access, inclusion, and belonging is that we aren't taught to do the work of diversity, equity, access, inclusion, and belonging in our in our in our fields. It's not a part of professional developments when we get out into, at least when I was coming up and going to professional developments as a teacher. Now it's starting to change a little bit. And and I say that because I'm getting asked to lead some things for school districts and professional organizations. And that just wasn't going on earlier on in, in my career. But because for those of us who are who did not come through a, a system um, that had that part of it, there's some fear of being wrong or saying something wrong and the backlash that will come with that. Now, there are people who say things that are wrong with with the full knowledge that um, 
what they're saying is in um is is only from their lived experience. So I'm not talking about those folks. I'm talking about the people who are trying to do actually do the work and make changes, but they are timid about fully going in because they're afraid of making a mistake. So I want to make that clear. There are people who just say wrong, uh, wrong things. And I'm, I want to clarify what wrong is. When you're only thinking about your own lived experience, particularly the one that is rooted in the power that's given to you because of the cycle of oppression, um, and you are choosing to not see um, different or of the variety of lived experiences around you. That's a separate category. There are people who are engaged in the work who are scared to make a mistake and they're scared to be um, what may come afterwards. And so they don't necessarily um, jump into diversity, equity, access, and inclusion and belonging. And that can be frustrating for people who are in the work because they are like, we've been waiting for so long and we need you to just jump on and make this change now when it's high stakes, it's high stakes and it feels high stakes. And we just, we don't allow people space to grow. So I wanna pause here for just a moment and talk about fear. Fear is a biological response when you're about to do something that's new and unfamiliar. Your brain kicks in the fear response, which is powered up by your amygdala, which is part of your brain that is responsible for emotional processing and stress responses, and it shows up as fight, flight, or freeze. We know what this feels like, and while this may seem dramatic for what we're talking about today, this part of our brain has not evolved much since the days in which we were hunting and gathering and potentially being chased by a lion. Our fear response is truly the same. You can even feel it in your body before your brain registers it as a thought. Your heart races, your hands get sweaty, your breath may become shallow. But fear can also be very sneaky and can show up in a variety of ways, including avoidance, deflection, self-doubt, resistance, and even confusion. And it is through a practice of self-awareness that we can recognize the fear for what it is, a biological response to keep us safe, and then choose to lean into the discomfort to learn and grow by doing the work, particularly this very important work. It's fear. And, you know, part of the fear is, too, is that you have when you go back and you the reason why I want us to go back and look at ourselves and our own lived experiences and how they may manifest themselves in our classroom is that the fear of having to confront the fact that maybe the way you were raised, maybe you were raised in a situation that um, that um, perpetuates the cycle of oppression. And you have to face that. And once you know better, you can do better. You have a choice to do better. And if you actively choose to not do better, that's some stuff you have to grapple with. But if I just keep filling my bags with tips and tricks, then I can cover all of that stuff. I can I can fake it till I make it. I never really have to go really deep into my own stuff. I don't have to t- think about, you know, the great grandparent who may have used derogatory words to describe people of color. I don't have to think about that. I can just say that was that was just them back then. It was. But you also need to think about maybe what imprint was left on you. You may not say those words, but you may have an imprint may have been left upon you that that little thought that comes into your mind when you pass somebody. Where does that come from? We're conditioned. You know, I do a little activity with people where I where I tell a story and I have all these situations and I ask them to go back and, well, who did you visualize in those places? And the, the eyes are always like, 
Now, so I'm not going to, you don't have to tell me anything, but if everybody you visualize in that story I told look like you, that's a part of the brain work, you know, the sameness that we're looking for. We may not know it, but looking for patterns, looking for sameness, that's how we survived during the Stone Age. <laughs> You know, and that's the same kind of ideology that per, that per, uh, perpetuates these institutionalized and systemic racism and that we still see today. And this is when I wanted to ask him about concrete things that teachers could do in their classroom to really do the work deeply, not just on the surface level. The other part about teachers stepping into the work is because of that fear, they latch on to what I call the low hanging fruit. It's the easy thing to do to immediately get a response from the people in front of you that feeds you in the way that you need to be fed around the work. So one of those examples is I'm going to go buy uh, charts with diverse hands on them and hang them up in my room. That's, you know, easy peasy. I can do that. I can put that up in the room and everything will be just fine. Um, And people will feel like I'm doing the work. But here's what I say. Here's the fruit that's higher up on the tree that's a little harder to reach that you're going to have to work for. If you don't have a diverse classroom, why not go and meet somebody who has a classroom that doesn't look like yours and then form relationships, maybe virtual pen pals or whatever you need to do to form the relationship that will then allow you to put those students together and talk and get to know each other. And then they create their own edge hand signs made up with their own hands. And then you hang those up in the classroom. So not only are they reflected and respected, but they are also integrated and a part of the teaching and learning that happens in your classroom, like the actual curriculum. They are helping make that up. That's pretty deep. That takes time. You have to build relationships. And that's what I think is going to help us work through and be better for and to each other in the work of diversity, equity, access, inclusion, and belonging. We have to learn how and who to be for each other. And sticking posters up that you can just go buy on the internet really quickly is not the way to get to the deeper learning and reaching higher up on that tree for the fruit that is the best fruit. And that work, that work is going to make you very uncomfortable. You're going to have to stretch. You're going to feel like you want to give up. But through that process is where you learn to appreciate the work and you learn to appreciate the people next to you who are helping lift you up so that you can be a, uh, an ally, so that you can uh, re- relieve yourself of the performative allyship that we often find ourselves involved in sometimes when we're, when we're doing that diverse programming. There is no amount of diversity in one program that will um, make any kind of a significant difference in the in people feeling like they belong in your classroom. It's the things you do on a consistent basis that show it is embedded in who you are that makes people uh, see your, your level of comfort with the work and your level of commitment to the work. This is important here too. Culturally diverse programming isn't culturally responsive teaching. It's absolutely necessary for all of our students to see themselves in our classes and throughout each of our lessons. And Derek shared this really poignant example. It has never been illegal for my daughter to walk into a classroom and the first images she sees of herself in a book is associated to enslaved people. It's never been illegal, but now it's illegal for us to talk about some of those founding fathers who owned and enslaved people who look like her. 
Now it's now they want to make that illegal. And in an effort of activism and being allies, it is important to respond and act with a certain level of correct information. The direction in which the energy goes maybe needs to come with more information. So, for example, I often say to people in these workshops, um, did you know that Black Lives Matter before it was an organization or a hashtag? Did you know that? Because this is not when they started to matter. And it kind of, no one gets upset, but it's kind of like a, okay. And I, you know, who can you tell me who you helped by posting on your Instagram or your Twitter um, a peace sign and you had a rally smiling really, really big with your, with what, whatever sign you're holding on? Tell me who you, tell me who you helped. I'm not saying you didn't, but I want you to be able to put voices, put names, say specifically who you were there for and who did, how did you help? Or did you just shut down the streets so you could be in the newspaper? So I'm going to challenge people who don't want to be in the work, but I'm also going to challenge people who are involved in the work to be sure that um, <clears throat> the work that we're doing is actually moving us forward. It's also important I want to say this. I don't know how it's going to be received by anybody who's listening, but it's also important to recognize that just because someone is a woman or they're black or they're, you know, any any other of the um, aspects of, of a person's intersectionality, it doesn't mean that that person um, wants to lead or should be leading. What, what was so what has been so great for me is to recognize that I'm going to be specific about my own lived experience is that it's not for me, it's not the black community, it's black communities. And with that in mind, it's important for me when I'm talking about communities to help people recognize that there are not there are no communities a monolith and there are generational variations. There are community variations within uh, part of the cycle of oppression is um, internal oppression. And with that internal oppression is colorism. And as people who are looking to be better allies, it is still prudent for us to vet those who we put in front of us to lead. And we have to maybe recognize that just because we feel good in this person's presence, we may not be learning in a way that's going to support our students. Culturally relevant pedagogy is not the same as culturally entertaining pedagogy. But um, as that relates to the work that we're doing around diversity, equity, access, inclusion, and belonging, I just want to be sure to put that out there, either as a challenge, an affirmation, or a place for you to think deeply as you choose the places where you get your information and how you um, use those skills in your in your classrooms. Um, I say that because, you know, I'll see things where people will say, do this in your Title I schools, and it'll be things geared towards all Black people. Well, not all schools, not all Title I schools are, are Black folks. I'm sure there's some Title I schools and, and parts of New York that are not, that have no people of color in them. And it's important that we recognize that that is a part of the cycle of oppression and the stereotypes that are born from um, the, the institutional ideas that are instilled with us, within, within us. Or it's, it's a product of us not living um, not taking time to look outside of our own lived experiences to recognize that there are um, representations of cultures that maybe not 
represented in my life, but are still a significant and still a representation of, in my case, the Black community. So here's the thing. Diversity, equity, access, inclusion, and belonging is not something that's separate from our content area. Because at the end of the day, the job is to teach kids lifelong 21st century skills through our content, and in this case, music. And if we're not doing that, then what exactly are we doing? This work is not done in a silo that's separate from everything else. And to do it right means that it needs to be integrated and woven into the fabric of each class and within the school as a whole. I don't think the work of culturally relevant pedagogy has to be separate from the music making. So just like you would talk about, um, you know, about Mozart, because we learn about that and we learn the language to use when talking about Mozart, you would do that exact same thing. And one of the things I just made a Facebook post about incorporating cultural, culturally relevant pedagogy with my collegiate group around an arrangement of I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. We're still teaching notes and rhythms and things like that that we do all the time. But then we're also and we're all, but we're also talking about the history and the places from which the music came, just like we would talk about, you know, if we were talking about Strauss, we would talk about the waltzes and then we would talk about well, waltzes were done. That's that's all a part all a part of that. Um, but we also want to talk about, you know, maybe I'm maybe I should talk about engineering and producing of popular music but also talking about the people who are doing that work so that people can see other folks who may look like them doing that work. Now that's, it's not as deep as me going in talking about um, maybe some of the things I do in my workshop around white privilege or doing a white privilege checklist. And those things in some of those states that are wrestling with these laws, some of them are wrestling with them, they're just doing them. You may not be able to do that, but that doesn't take away from, you can't, that doesn't mean you still can't go in and talk about where the music's from, who the music is associated with, and maybe some of the problematic places, but you would have to make sure you do that consistently with everybody. But that's a bad idea for us to be be more consistent about pointing out the places, that, the, the magical things about music, but also recognizing that music um, does not come without challenges. And those challenges could be that maybe we should say, you know, handle handles probably handle because of the money that was the, from the patrons that made the money that the patrons made from being involved in the transatlantic slave trade that were paid, you know, handled to be able to, to be handled. I think there's a way to deliver that information um, so that you can be safe in those spaces. Being, uh, I have been in states where I know people are living parts of those states that, that they struggle with that. And so it's been really important to be able to help support them. Every act under the umbrella of diversity, equity, access, inclusion, and belonging doesn't have to be the same size. So for me, you won't see me out. You won't see me out with a sign going down the street in a in a um, in a protest walking. That's not where my power lies. My power lies in the classroom and the experiences I build with the students. It doesn't have to be this or it's this and. And it is so true. Nothing is truly ever just one thing. And as far as continuing to do this work in the future, Derek had this to say. It seems to be so cliche. Um, the thing to say is people from marginalized and groups shouldn't have to help people. And I've heard it more specifically, white people figure out how they should be um, with um, around diversity, equity, access, inclusion, and belonging. And the thing that I say is it's my choice as a person from a marginalized population to do this work. I get to choose to do that. 
And so no one can take that from me. And it's important that I say that out loud because there are lots of people from marginalized uh, populations who are doing this work. And we don't want to be felt, uh, we don't want to be treated like we are um, betraying the work of diversity, equity, access, inclusion, and belonging by trying to help people understand. Because listen, we've been waiting 400 plus years in some cases for people to do the right thing. And it still hasn't happened. So it's time for me just like some people before me to step out and step into the work. And it is high stakes. And it was high stakes for me over this past year. And, you know, in some situations where, I, where I've had to be, but it was worth it for the learning that happened. Um, and hopefully there'll be other people who see me doing this work and feel comfortable stepping into it as well. Just as I've seen other people do it, who made me comfortable feel, uh, stepping into it. And Dr. Fox's latest workshop is Diversity and Inclusion in Action, which is over the summer of 2021. And you can find more about that in the podcast notes. But he did also have this to add about that particular workshop. So the reason why I was it was purposeful that I put in action at the end of that diversity and equity inclusion in action, because we always hear have the discussion, have the discussion, have the discussion. But now that has to turn into action because you can also spin your wheel in discussions. And those discussions can make you feel like you're doing something, but you, but you really aren't if you're just talking about ideas all the time and ideas and ideas and everybody's sitting at the table and say, so, okay, okay, now we got to get up and go in, into the world and put forth some effort. And so the idea around this um, diversity and inclusion in action workshop is to one, provide an opportunity for us to take a step back and do that internal work that I talked about, and then to move towards First, learning, being introduced to new repertoire, but also learning how to introduce that repertoire in the context of our classrooms that give variety of on-ramps for students to feel like they are represented, reflected, and respected in your classroom. Being able to talk a little bit more about how to put culturally relevant pedagogy into practice into your classroom as a part of your teaching, not as as an add-on. We've learned the notes, we've learned the rhythms. Now let's talk about the piece. Involve engaging in those things so that students feel like they are uh, of value when you're talking about pieces that may connect to their lived experience or their culture. And then it's also about building a cohort. So being able to do this work, it's, it's not recorded and I'm keeping it small on purpose so that we can actually get to know people. So I've built in some things around the information that we're sharing. Because if you just put people in a room and say, hey, meet these people, but it's actually we're the four people in this group. And I want you to talk about this, this, and this, and then share this when you come back. And it's about the information that we share. So hopefully you will build, you will, you can begin to build relationships with people with whom, with whom you can come back and maybe have follow-up conversations as your year starts. And so I haven't, this is not on the website yet, but my goal is to have this meeting, um, these, these two days, the two half days, because they don't know this yet, but there's a homework after the first morning and that, and it's going to require you to do some work when you leave and prepare for the next day. But my goal is to reconnect with this cohort of people during the year, during the academic year. So once in the fall, maybe once in the spring, so that we can continue to draw thread through their work based on the work that we start this summer. At the end of the day, we need to teach the whole child. But the truth is, we don't teach the whole child, even though we adamantly say that we do. We need to be more comfortable becoming non-judgmental observers of ourselves and use our reflection as 
data points so we can continue to get better. We need to be mindful of the fear of being wrong and remember our intentions because change happens at the speed of safety. So we need to create a sense of safety for ourselves to do this work and for our students in all of our classrooms. If you want to know more about Dr. Derek Fox's work, go ahead to drderekfox.com. The link to that is in the podcast notes. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and share it with a friend. Until next time, this is Jen Rafferty. Have a wonderful day. This podcast was brought to you by Jen Rafferty Music, cover art by Molly Reagan and Good Neighbor Art, and music by John Kiefner. 